0: You're listening to Don't Waste Water.
1: Had I been educated in business beyond this book that I read carefully, I would probably have not done what I did.
2: Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Twist For The Podcast.
1: We looked at each other and we said, this isn't going to work. This isn't the solution. So what the hell is?
2: I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Benedict
1: as my guest. What is interesting, Antoine, is that for 16 years, We had no competition because everybody thought this is crazy. Let me start by saying
2: that Andrew is an industry legend, being today the executive chairman of Energia after having
1: founded and led Zenon for almost three decades. We spent $7 million of our precious money on fiber research only to wind up with a dud. How
2: can the path of an entrepreneur that refused to retire in light of the challenges ahead with climate change inspire a new generation of world professionals? Let's review. There's a fine line between genius and madness, between visionary and crazy, between confidence and vanity. So, when we look back at Andrew Benedict's path, I can say he's a genius that was confident enough in his vision to stay true to it for two decades long while everyone told him he was mad. I mean, you can try to ignore the noise and the voices around you, but I'm often told on that microphone that the market never lies. And in fact, for 16 years, Xenon had no competition, which by extension may mean that Xenon had no market. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a younger Andrew, in the late 80s, promoting membranes in wastewater treatment when almost no one even believed that this technology could make a dent in drinking water applications. Would you pivot? Would you give up? Or would you double down? Of course, 40 years later with MPRs now a dominant voice the treatment technology, it's hard to put the survivor bias aside, and we're probably all thankful to Andrew for not giving up. But can we rationalize why Zenon succeeded against all the odds? If you're familiar with Paul O'Callaghan's concept of crisis-driven innovation, things suddenly start to make more sense. Indeed, as Andrew will explain in a jiffy, water scarcity was a crisis in the making and this already in the 80s. And while only a handful of visionaries had realized it and aligned themselves to water reuse becoming mandatory, the setup existed. Luck is not the decisive factor here, it's a skill and you'll realize in a minute that this skill has not vanished and still fires up the now 78 Andrew Benedict. Right before I let him share this incredible story, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help me up incredibly by sharing that content around you. Tell your friends, colleagues or LinkedIn network what you found inspiring in what Andrew shares today. I firmly believe that this message deserves to reach the widest possible audience. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side.
0: You're listening to Don't Waste Water the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com.
2: Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hello, Antoine. I just told you that I'm excited to have you on on that microphone because you're one of the industry legends. So I'm really glad that you have the chance to explore your path today. And we'll go into that in in just a minute. But I have a tradition on that microphone, which is to open with a postcard. And you're sending a postcard from France. That's something which is quite funny as well. What can you tell me about Cannes, which I would ignore by now?
1: Cannes is... uh only a good place during the festival, if you are a member of the industry. We're we're enjoying very much the excitement. We see movie stars go by, but we're we're not being welcomed on the red carpet. A a (laughs) few years ago, I did actually manage to buy a ticket and be on the red carpet, but nobody took a picture of me.
2: I still believe you. You don't need a picture to prove it. It's not going to be about, I mean, I mentioned you're a legend. You're not a cinema or movie legend. You're a water legend, so it's going to be a bit more about that. And I was doing my my due diligence and looking up your path, and in in multiple interviews, you've mentioned that your first mentor, Jack Hodgins, had offered you a business book in 1980, And you never mentioned the title of that book. And you mentioned it to be the single business resource you had when you started your full path. And when I see your full path, that book must have been really awesome. So do you remember the title of the book?
1: Yes, it was called The Entrepreneur's Guide.
2: So you start with that Entrepreneur's Guide. And was everything inside or did you learn it hands-on?
1: Well, I, I mentioned the book only to say that I think had I been educated in business, Beyond this book that I read carefully, I would probably have not done what I did because to attack the water market using a a technology that's unproven and no one in the right mind would have gone into took some courage. It also took some courage to start a company with no money. And then to start it not just by making membranes, but by getting equipment, analytical equipment, that were quite costly. So what the book did help me, interestingly, is to realize that you should make everything a profit center. That was the single most powerful idea. And the only reason I survived with this lack of knowledge in business was that having bought a GC mass spec, which were critical at the time to measure pollutants and and spend my last dollar on it, I found a way to actually make money from it by starting an analytical business. And it's ultimately the analytical business that actually made the money. The membranes was a way to invest. I had no venture capital investor, no venture capital investor. In fact, would have been crazy enough to invest in, in a professor wanting to find a solution to water reuse.
2: That brings me straight into the deep dive because that's something I'd like to understand. First, if anyone doesn't know by now, that tiny little company, a little thing that you started is Zenon which is maybe the one company that revolutionized the way that we treat our wastewater. And you mentioned that you wanted to go into this reuse from the beginning and that you were a professor. So that was back in 1970, if I'm right. You were a professor at McMaster University. I'd like to understand what you did between 1970 and 1980. Did you develop something that you ultimately turned into a company? Or how did you come to Zenon?
1: Between 1970 and 1980, while I was a professor at McMaster, I I was focusing on water research and trying to find solutions of the future. But I was betting on a technology that turned out to be relatively marginal. That was activated carbon. So I did a great deal of research with my students on modeling activated carbon EPA thought that is the technology of the future. There were many conferences. And I should uh, tell you, because you're French, that the idea of going to membranes was born together with a French friend who used to work for La Lyonnaise. And his name was François F. François Fissanger and I were at a conference in Atlanta, probably the 10th conference on activated carbon of the year. And we looked at each other during the conference, and by then, we have done a lot of work in this space. Lyonnais Laboratory was created in Le Pec, partly to focus on activated carbon. Together, we won the Prix Chambiron for active carbon research. That was the biggest prize at the time. But we looked at each other and we said, this isn't going to work. This isn't the solution. So what the hell is? So we actually rented a little cottage on Lake Lanier, north of Atlanta and spent the weekend together debating what to do instead of activated carbon. So we both agreed that membranes is the answer. He... Th-
2: that is bold because we are in the seventies and thinking that membrane is the answer by then you are. 20 or 30 years in advance of the timeline of the water history.
1: This was in the late 70s. He actually went back to France and convinced uh, Jerome Monod, who was at the time chairman of La Lyonnaise, to begin a membrane project in Toulouse. I went back to Canada and started to think about how to create a membrane company because we also both realized that you don't change the world through academic research.
2: So you, you turned your research and your interest into membranes into a company, and that's 1980. So you create Zenon. When do you have your first product?
1: I started by doing what I knew how, is to do research. But then there was a company available that was making membranes in uh, Kitchener, Waterloo not far from where our company was in Ontario. So I bought this company that was making very primitive membranes tubular membranes. And Xenon began making tubular membranes for purifying water, in particular oily wastewater from automotive production, because that's what the company was doing.
2: What was the material of those membranes at the time?
1: At first it was polysulfone, and then eventually we started working on PVDF.
2: So in the 80s, you start having that, that, that company that you acquired, you go into this tubular membrane, which you call... Primitive, and you keep developing. I'd like to share you uh, an extract here of an interview I made a while ago with Graham Pierce, and he was explaining how his own experience was difficult with bringing membranes to the market, and they were looking at oil and gas like you, but also the drinking side of the market where they had some regulatory push and here's what he said about xenon
0: on the wastewater side,
2: the xenon people were basically telling industry,
0: this is what the future is going to look like. And for a long time, nobody paid much attention to them or didn't really accept what they were saying or were saying, it's going to always be too expensive. It's
2: never going to work. It's too technically difficult. So they didn't get the legislative drivers
0: that the clean side got.
2: Bringing membranes to the market is already incredibly difficult. And you go... To the wastewater side of it, which is apparently even more difficult. Why so?
1: I have always been an idealist. I grew up in a communist country. By the time I was 13 years old, I read virtually every single classic European book. That kind of made me idealistic almost in a foolish manner, to be honest, because a lot of these books, like Émile de Zola, who I read all of his books, as an example, Anatole France, just to talk about French writers, all of them were basically suggesting solutions to the challenges of the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. And they were somewhat idealistic, and of course, life is more complicated and But it basically gave me a direction that perhaps a bit unusual. Starting to work as a chemical engineer, I realized that us chemical engineers do some good, but we also do some bad. And I realized it because I started some summer jobs and uh, we were polluting the river and the, the company wasn't serious about doing anything about it. And that's what made me go back to graduate school. And then when I became a professor, still wanting to do something about water pollution, I started looking at the world in a different lens. I started reading books like The Population Bomb and The Limits to Growth, which was The Club of Rome. This is before you were probably born, Antoine. But we had a population of 3 billion, having grown from... to it a bit after the Second World War. And people were projecting the world running out of resources. The one resource that seemed like we are going to run out of was water. Because if you keep growing, uh, people need more water. If you improve their standard of living, they need more water. And frankly, we were wasting water. And this is a period when rivers were going um, on fire because industry was discharging without control. So I actually got into this space for idealistic reasons. And I started Xenon for the same. I started Xenon wanting to find a solution to the future water crises.
2: It's very interesting because history tends to repeat. We are talking right now of a potential water scarcity by by 2030, where according to the projections, we're missing 40% of the water to strive by then. And water reuse is hence now seen as something that shall cover 10% of of the world's needs by 2030. But again, looking at that, even with an idealistic lens in the 80s and thinking that is going to be the place to strive, that is beyond visionary. So really impressive. There's something, you mentioned how you read only one business book. I do get that you're reading much more books, but at the time only one business book. I've read many business books. I never started a company and I never was so successful that that you were, but there's one common pattern in these business books is that they say, you shall look for competition. You shall look for competition because that's a sign that the niche you're addressing and the space you want to evolve in has a good potential. It's hard to be the only one which is right. Yet, Graham said that Zenon was the lonely prophet.
0: Zenon, basically... It was a bit like the lonely prophet in the wilderness.
2: And I've seen you in interviews saying that you see the opposite. You say competition is what you shall avoid at the beginning. You shall go for very dedicated niches, cut your teeth, and once you're strong enough, then go to competition. And it seems like against all the odds and all the books, you're right. So what's your take on that matter?
1: I don't want to comment on whether you should look for competition or not, but definitely if there's no competition, there's no market, and it's very hard to create the market. But on the other hand, if you're developing technology, and you're a small company, and you're up against established companies, entering such a market is very difficult, and you're less likely to succeed unless you have very deep pockets and you sustain yourself for a long time and you have an advantage over the existing competitors who in today's world can easily copy you and therefore you lose your advantage and you you lose your chance to really make money in the case of xenon graham is right no one thought that a membrane could actually work at all in base water because it's such a delicate material. And second, no one thought it could ever be practical to go up against gravity and sand, but we believe so. And so systematically, we looked for a solution. What is interesting, Antoine, is that for 16 years, we had no competition because everybody thought this is crazy in America. We had some in Japan. But they were doing the building wastewater treatment, small scale stuff, but they were doing it. We actually started getting into the membrane bioreactors basically because we had a client that made us put the tubular membranes that I talked about ahead of the biological plant. And I said to myself, that's crazy. You're much better off to do the biological to retain the bacteria and reverse it.
2: Who were your early adopters how in these 16 years where you're this lonely ranger lonely prophet in the desert maybe with I guess the, the Japanese must be Kubota or I might be yes, wrong Kubota Mitsubishi so in, in North America you're alone in Europe my research indicates that maybe Verley was a bit into that field as well
1: oh, after us okay in Europe competition is much quicker so we went to the first IFAD meeting Nobody showed membrane bioreactors for wastewater treatment, not a single one. The next time we went, three years later, there were three. And the time after, nine. So it, it kept exponentially increasing.
2: So in the water industry, where everybody wants to be first to be second, how do you find your early adopters?
1: It was two ways that we got into it, Antoine. One was on our own, which was we were supplying these tubular membranes that I talked about to General Motors. And General Motors had a visionary leader who wanted to find a better solution. His name was Raj Mishra. And he agreed with us to install one at Mansfield, Ohio in a General Motors plant. So that was the first large scale, maybe the first period industrial wastewater treatment. When was that? Sometime in the late 80s. I don't remember the exact year. I I should look that up.
2: Almost a decade. But
1: around the same time, around the same time, we were supplying membranes to another company that was, in fact, the first commercial MBR, a little bit of MBR history for you, Antoine. MBRs were invented in the 1960s, not by me, I had nothing to do with it, by Dora Oliver. The problem Dora Oliver had is that They actually built a municipal plant called Pike's Peak, a couple MGD plant. The problem they had is that they used their own membrane, which was plate and frame membrane, because that's what they knew how to make from their plate and frame filters. And this was terribly expensive and difficult to maintain. Cleaning it was difficult. That failed. And I think after that, It's the Japanese that started with the Shinkansu membranes in the buildings. But in North America, there was a company called Stetford, the people that make toilets for RVs in Michigan. They actually had a small group that was doing membrane bioreactors for small scale projects. And we bought that company as well. And then we worked with them and this is all tubular membranes so far for developments, buildings and shopping centers. So we kind of entered the MBR business directly by ourselves and also indirectly through a company that was buying our membranes.
2: When did you switch from tubular membranes to hollow fiber?
1: I'm trying to make sure I get the right date. I think it happened toward the end of the 80s. And it happened from pain of the head of research. This is in Canada, so he was French Canadian. And one of my PhD students from McMaster's. It happened because we had a major project in fibers. I knew that tubes are not the answer, so we're looking for fibers. And we had a brilliant idea that would be fantastic in university setting because it took advantage of a particular kind of fluid mechanics that would make these membranes super efficient, but it turned out to be a product that wasn't practical, and particularly not for wastewater and for MBR. We called it musticare because it looked like something you put on your windows in Canada to keep the mosquitoes out. It it was falling so quickly that it became hopeless. So we spent $7 million of our precious money on fiber research only to wind up with a dud. And out of desperation, Pierre suggested we should try membranes directly immersed into wastewater. That's how we went to what later became Zweed. It looked like seaweed, but because we our company was Xenon and everything began with a, a Z or Z, we called it Zweed. Interestingly, Antoine, I just attended a ceremony where Professor Yamamoto was given the same prize I was given. I got the first Li Kuan Yew Prize in 2008. He's got this year's prize for being the first one to propose that one should put fibers into water for wastewater treatment, naked fibers. I believe that we had no connection to him. But I also believe that he deserved the prize because he was before us. The difference is that we commercialized the idea and he did not.
2: It's about the execution. An idea is nothing if you don't execute on it. I'm not judging. I'm just saying the devil's in the detail, which you find out if you execute it.
1: Well, the world doesn't uh, change from ideas. And that's why I quit the university, because <laughs> I would write papers and I realized that It's going to have no impact, no matter how brilliant the mathematics, it will have no impact.
2: So by the late eighties, you start to develop the, the hollow fiber. You have your first full-scale reference. You have your two different ways of, of going to the market directly and through someone who, who uses your membrane. What is the point in time where you feel finally a strong traction? Like something is happening and all that technology is really Selling like hot bagel.
1: The first step, interestingly, in our evolution was not what we intended to be. In fact, nothing ever happens the way you think it should. (laughs) So interestingly, there was a catastrophe in Milwaukee with cryptosporidium and all of a sudden membranes was the answer for water treatment, not wastewater treatment.
2: The clean water side, yeah.
1: So we didn't want to go in the clean water side. We wanted to be in the wastewater side, always. That's why I started the company. That's where we were. And in fact, we tried to work in Memcor because they were only on the water side, but they refused to cooperate with us in the drinking water side. And so we said, all right, well, we see an opportunity here. Let's see if our membranes work for water. And so our first significant references were not for wastewater they for drinking water and the drinking water market pulled ahead and became very significant in north america but we of course continued our wastewater work we're not talking early 90s drinking water is going toward membranes in fact that particular period almost all the plants in canada for drinking water were based on membranes and wastewater was still very few municipalities, small ones that would go that way. It's around maybe the late 90s that water reuse in the West became more and more important and we started building references. And most important, we started building connections to key consultants in in the water market, which as you know, in North America is critical for commercialization that both believed in MBRs and water reuse using membranes and believed in our company as a key supplier.
2: So in these late 90s, actually, you see the same thing happening that for the clean water on the dirty side of it. I mean, I I say same, but it's similar in the same that the boom in the clean side was this cryptosporidium and, and all the quality concerns like E. coli. And, and, and colloidals in Europe quite a lot. And the higher quality standard led to the inception of, of membranes. And, and in wastewater treatment, if you want to reuse it, that means you're improving the, the grade of treatments. You want a higher quality standard at the output, and hence, it somehow commands for membranes. So the driver is really the use of the water. So the higher ends the treatment needs to be, the better it is for your technology and, and for its breakthrough within the market.
1: Yeah, so it was water reuse and the embracing of water reuse globally, and in particular Singapore, which is a fascinating story on its own.
2: I've seen that you mentioned there as the company that enabled new water, which is bold when you see how important new water is for Singapore's geopolitical environment. So, But really, I've seen that you received some awards there to, to underline the role you played in, in that water reuse scheme. So in the 90s, reuse is, is driving forward. In the late 90s, there's that boom in China of MBRs, and, and it becomes today almost a go-to in wastewater treatment, not only for reuse, but also for compact plants. I mean, activated sludge is still the workhorse of the industry, but nevertheless, Membrane bioreactors are now quite commonplace. How do you see that from a technology company perspective? How do you feel that finally you've reached beyond the mass market, almost a commodity?
1: It's interesting that you bring up China. So China didn't have any MBRs at all. And it was a relationship between me and the founder of Synord today. She was in another company prior, and they decided that they want to bring MBRs to China. That's the beginning of MBRs in China. And China today is 50% of the wastewater plants are MBRs. So when you asked me earlier, when did all this get started? And I saw that it's going to happen. Well, I always knew it's going to happen because it's dramatically simpler and better than the old waste that we were using and much more reliable. But what is interesting too, is that the water market now for membranes is only a third of the wastewater market because what I always knew is happening, which is water shortages and they're accelerating. MBRs are still growing at about 15% a year. And that's a remarkable thing in technology. When you think back, starting 30 years ago, what technology is still around, never mind prospering and growing? But now it's everywhere. In my current business, we bought recently two plants that were really badly built, but they have MBRs. The MBRs are membranes from China. They didn't work, but somehow whoever decided to build it chose MBRs. So I see MBRs everywhere now.
2: And if you have to put a flag somewhere and to say that is the date at which it's mass market, and if you have an event which tells you that is mass market, when would you put it?
1: Well, I think if you were to put a date uh, or or a particular event, probably when CH2M Hill decided to use MBRs for Seattle, which would have been early 2000 maybe, 2002, 2003, that era, CH2M Hill and brown and caldwell were both focusing on MBRC in many of their plans and singapore also started to build them so i would say it's the early maybe 2002 2003 was the break point
2: i, I, I think you're, you're getting what i'm trying to 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 find out here it's i'm just trying to redraw the, the timeline so 70s to 80s you do your research then you you think okay having looked at everything which is around, the best option is probably membranes. And You want to go beyond the idea and to go into the real phase. So in the 80s, you launch Xenon. And for the first 10 years, it's really looking around, trying to find the right spots, bringing the tubular membrane to market. Late 80s, you get your first reference Then you switch to hollow fiber. In the 90s, you start to get some tractions and to really have the boom in MBRs starting in the late 90s and and by the beginning of the 2000s, you're in the middle of the market, which means you need 30 years of dedication to your original intuition and to your original idea that you will make it in that sphere and you will have an impact. Do you have time over these 30 years where you think, what if I was wrong?
1: You know what? If you have any doubts whatsoever you won't make it and and i had none and in fact i also believe that if you truly believe something and it's a reasonable belief in other words it's something the world needs it will happen there's a big difference between desire and belief i want to lose weight right that's my desire but if i don't believe i will lose weight even if i lose some weight it will come back again but if i believe that i'm going to be slim for sure it it will happen and i'm taking a very simple example but it's the same in uh, business
2: you're familiar with paulo callahan's thesis on the dynamics of of water innovation and with paul on that microphone he underlines how needs driven innovation is the one that makes it and makes it faster than value driven so you have to go for a need and yeah, at the beginning of your, your your full story, there was an intuition which turned out into a need when the word needed to reuse its water. So that somehow correlates with the findings of, of Paul across his thesis. Unless you have a counterexample example and you say, no, um, I disagree with, with that thesis.
1: Let me say that I generally agree with Paul. So no, no <laughs> disagreement. I just want to crystallize what I was trying to say one you have to absolutely believe that whatever it is that you want to do you can do two you have to be persistent and in in the water field particularly persistent because it it seems like markets move extremely slowly like almost like no other industry but if you are A believer and you're persistent and and you're willing to work at it, miracles happen.
2: Let me go to the final chapter of that that Zenon story. In 2006, you sold Zenon to General Electric, so GE Water. How does that happen?
1: Well, just so you know, a year before GE made the offer to buy our company, My, my wife and I bought a house in California because we said when GE buys the company, we'll probably want to have that house. I actually tried to prevent GE from buying the company. This is a story that probably no one knows, so I'll I'll tell it to you, particularly because you're French. (laughs) I'm somewhat of a Francophile. So I thought rather than have GE buy the company, which I thought was inevitable because they like to be number one, this was the number one water technology company, this kind of company fits with GE they want to manufacture they want to manufacture scale we had all the ingredients and the other companies they were buying did not so I figured at some point they'll figure out that they're buying the wrong companies and focus that energy on us I didn't know how I could prevent that except I thought I could do it maybe by buying DeGremont so I knew Jean-Louis Chaussade so I came to see Jean-Louis and I said, Jean-Louis, you got a losing company in De Grammont. Why don't we combine the two? You'll have a public company in which you will have control, and I'll fix up your mess at De <laughs> It went quite a ways, all the way up to Mestrade, who was then the CEO, who said we can't let go such an important part of our company like De Grammont. So that was the end of that story. And at that point I said, okay, well, we have no choice. G is going to offer something and we'll have to sell it to them because they certainly have the resources and we're a public company. So that's what actually happened. What is truly interesting is that many years later, Jean-Louis Chossard was now the CEO of Suez. And when G put the business up for sale, I'm told, by people who Jean-Louis talked to I, I didn't speak to him that he bought it because he really wanted Xenon within Suez but of course now he's retired and Camus lost it
2: I cannot tell you what he told the people but I can tell you that at that time I was working for DeGremont and that's what everybody was saying it's it was like that full move is because yeah we need z inside the product range so it, it sounds relatable I'd say I was actually not at all at the same sphere of decisions than that, that you were. And it's crazy how that would have been awesome, actually, to see that joint venture happening at the time you wanted to have it happen. So you bought that house in California, one year early from the sales from Zenon to GE. So again, you're ahead of times and you're a bit visionary. And what's crazy in that story, sorry, just to use the word crazy, but at that time, without cracking a secret, you, you, you're 63, you have that house in California. You just sold... Your company for 760 million to GE not all in your pocket but still i guess you must have had some money from that deal which comes to you so you have everything aligned to to just retire and to peacefully strive on the west coast of the us you even started being a researcher at the scripps institute and giving some course there non-paid assignments from what i read and one year later, you acquire a German company, which is just in bankruptcy. You move to Europe and you just turn the company on its head. And 15 years down the line, we're here speaking together. You're still heading that company. And that company just won the Global Water Awards for the Wastewater Project of the Year. I'm just wondering, why did you decide to dive back into the the shark tank?
1: I have to tell you that it is a shark tank. And sometimes I wonder what the hell I got myself into. But remember that idealism. I started working at Scripps and talking to scientists and looking at the ocean. I really got scared about climate change. So here I am, I don't need to work. I'm living in a wonderful place. I could do anything I want, but for me, I just couldn't sit there and, you know, enjoy my money and watch a problem without wanting to do something. I didn't want to go back in the shark tank. I just wanted to make an investment and advise, you know, that's what people in that age group who have money want to do. I, I got stuck, to be very honest with you. I wanted to make a difference in climate change. I unfortunately got a company which I liked, which was the pioneer in German anaerobic digestion technology. Had it been a healthy company, I would have just made an investment and tried to help them to come to America. But instead I wound up owning it. And then I wound up with a mess that I had to fix. So I, that's why I moved to Europe. Gradually, my vision and dreams got bigger and bigger, and the company did too. You know, it's like once successful, you think you can do it again, kind of thing. It's in your it's in your bread in the bone almost, you know what I mean? It's like, you wonder, you see conductors, and they're like 85 years old, and they're still conducting. For me, uh, work is painful sometimes and strenuous, But it's an art form. It's not a job I do for money.
2: And now that you're 15 years in at Energia, did you see common traits between your two entrepreneurial adventures? So between Xenon and Energia, and did you see major differences? Did it maybe change over time or is it simply a different field or is it really similar?
1: Well, to build a company that makes a paradigm shift, which this one also does, you need to do certain things that I hit upon by trial and error in Xenon. And even though I didn't always know what I was doing and didn't follow a script, so to speak, in Energia, but as I look at it, I did exactly the same thing in the two companies, which is fundamentally four steps. Step one, you pick a problem that's big and it's going to grow with time. So in this case of energy, you know, we talked about water recycle was the problem I picked on the first one. Not picked, that picked me almost, you know, I just, I wanted to do something about it. In this case, it was climate change, the fear of climate change, which is, if anything, uh, is on steroids right now, The, the climate, the greenhouse gas issue. Then the second thing you need is a sustainable advantage. And that's in the context when we picked membranes and developed it, it was a new technology and therefore it was sustainable. The first kind of a first mover. In this particular case, we invested a great deal in technology to do things that no one else can do. And then you really need to find a way to, and this one I didn't do well at Xenon, but I try to do it here, minimize the risk a little bit, because no matter how good your plans are, what you can afford to do is to lose the company by one mistake. And lastly, you need really great people. You need great, motivated people, and the good fortune I have is that what motivates me is hopefully what's motivating the other people, and they don't see working for Energia or Xenon, nobody ever saw it as working for Andrew Benedek or working for making more money, the senior people. They're always part of the mission. It's what brings out the best in human beings.
2: I, I said it several times today. You have this visionary element and you know that is one of the major outcomes that society is looking at COVID. Like after COVID People want to work for a purpose. I mean, it has accelerated that transformation. And more and more, we see a generation of people just quitting their job because they don't have that purpose. And what I see is that actually from day one, when you started your first company until today, when you're still working, when you could be retired for 20 years, this purpose is something which is leading you, which is at the same time awesome, but also a pledge. Because how do you determine success? Do you have like a metric where you say, if I achieve that, then i have success? Or is it like a moving post and you have no chance to reach it?
1: Well, in this particular company, it's really difficult to say. But why I'm doing it is because we need solutions to get to net zero and beyond. And what my company does, in fact, I truly believe is a critical part of getting to net zero and getting to scale is very important because the problem is so immense. I mean, water recycle, if you talk to somebody 30 years ago, they would said water recycle has a very ambitious goal. It's still an ambitious goal. But if you look at climate change and what it takes to shift us from using more and more fossil fuels to less and reversing it, it's immense. It's several orders of magnitude, more difficult and more complex than water reuse.
2: I, I kept in the surface of, of that energy story on purpose because I agreed with Kunal Shah, who's working with you, to have a deeper dive into the topic because that's really a fascinating take at that race to net zero and at that transformation of, of the sector we have to undergo. And you could be one of these technology companies or these technologies, which could be the key to finally turn wastewater treatment into resource factories so it's a fascinating field if if you have one more hour i'd be very happy to take the deep dive right now with you but i have to be cautious of your time as well so i'll propose you to to round it up for that deep dive and to switch to the rapid fire questions
1: I, I just want you to know antoine that that is really your future and that in my case i'm working for your future is what i mean because if you don't solve this you won't have one but i want to tell you is that the older I get, the more ambitious I get because the problem is so big. I really want to find a solution. I have the gall, the chutzpah, to believe that our company can find a solution, that we can, in fact, find ways of reversing it, or at least that I can influence others to find a solution and reverse it. And at the same time, I'm worried that I can't. I'm not doubting it, that I have the right solution. I am very nervous about the, the speed, whether or not it can be done in time to avoid uh, a major catastrophe. We're having catastrophes every day, but I'm worried about billions of people dying.
2: You know, I'd love your worries to be wrong, but I have to say, <laughs> I share them. I, I can give you, now it's very self, self-centric and almost egotic, but you know, I was publishing a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago, which had in his title, um, how to divide our carbon emissions by two. And to me, that was just common sense. That is something we'd like to achieve as an industry. And usually I don't get feedback on my titles because I'm French and they are lame. But here I got people writing to me and saying, oh, no you're giving in into that climate change fallacy. We shouldn't be cutting emissions are not a problem. And I thought that we were past that point for a while, and it turns out we are not. So yeah, I I think it's important to have voices like yours reminding us that is the big topic of the coming, not decades, of the coming years, and that we have to start with pledges and, and to walk the talk.
0: It's time for the rapid fire questions.
2: My first question is what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why?
1: In the water sector, the most exciting project we're working on is a project called Sterling Natural Resources in Southern California in a town near San Bernardino. And it's one of the lowest lifespan areas of America. So it's a poor area of America and this will build is actually has built and is starting up the world's most advanced wastewater plant. It will be the most advanced wastewater plant for two reasons. One is that all of what comes into the plant becomes a product. There is no waste from wastewater. Of course, the water will be recycled using a new membrane company that I invested in, technology. The, and the Energia's technology will be used to convert all the solids into fertilizer. But for, even more, it will be exporting power, not using power. So this is a really exciting development that I believe all sewage plants should be going towards instead of being a wastewater plant, not just call it a resource recovery plant, actually make it a a true resource recovery plant. What's really even more exciting about this project is the second element, which is that the wastewater plant becomes a social good, not a place to hide away where nobody wants to live next to, this plant will be in a park with a community center with a vocational school a a park where bodies used to be found now is going to be the pride of the community this is next to a high school where the kids don't get a chance to graduate we'll be training them to become operators in the vocational side so it's really turning the wastewater concept as a disposal place that smells and one to have people away from, into something which is the pride of the town and helps with social benefits and also resource recovery.
2: When will it be commissioned?
1: It's, it will be commissioned this summer. So we're opening it actually on July twenty
2: three. That is a fascinating project. Let me try to keep my I could go into a deep dive for that, but have to refrain myself because if not we're still there in in two hours. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way?
1: I learn everything the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) I try, I fail, and I pick myself up and keep going.
2: Is there something in your job that you're doing today that you will not be doing in ten years? And and usually many people tell me work that they say, Oh, in 10 years, I'm not going to work anymore. But if you, if you tell me that, I don't believe you.
1: Well, as long as I'm alive, I'll be working. Will I be a CEO of energy? Probably not, but perhaps I'll be chairman.
2: What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector?
1: I I think the biggest problem of the water sector is innovation or lack thereof. Particularly the American water sector. It's very difficult to innovate and without innovation we ultimately don't serve our community well.
2: And last question. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the Global Water Challenge?
1: Well, if I were a world leader, I would move like we did to develop vaccines. I would move at maximum speed to reverse climate change. If I can reverse climate change, which is doable, it's only a resolve that is needed. Some countries are managing then I think we would also make a major impact on, on water shortages and, and so on and so forth. So to, to me, there are many problems in this world. There's environmental impact and species going extinct. That's a little bit less important. That's, it's terrible, but it's much less important than people running out of water and much less important than all of us dying, which is climate change. So you have to focus on, on the number one problem, and then of course you also try to fix the other ones.
2: So if we do right, there will be welcome side effects. Andrew, it's been an incredible pleasure to spend that hour with you. I'm sorry because I took a bit more of your time than than, than I had promised, but I, I can tell you, I, I could steal some hours of your time, but mm-hmm. I have to be respectful at some point, we have the pleasure to share the scene for the Bluetech forum in, in Vancouver. So I'm looking forward to meeting you physically on stage there. And yeah, if people want to follow up with you, where shall I redirect them the best?
1: Well, it's pretty straightforward. They can contact Energia or just email me directly at andrew.benedec at energia.com.
2: So like always, the the links to that are in the show notes if you're listening to that. And uh, thanks a lot and see you very soon.
0: Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.